All right, guys, welcome back to the Buck Fever podcast. We've got an exciting one in store for you today. Um, last week, we were kind of more geared towards the fishing side of things. We had a really good guest last week. If you haven't listened, make sure you go check it out. But this week, we are back on the archery side of things. Um, I'm here with Eli, and Eli has a, a connection to this guest. He knows a lot more about him than I do. So I'm going to turn this over to Eli now and kind of take a back seat and try and learn a thing or two. So Eli, take it away. Absolutely. And it is going to be August tomorrow. So uh, if you have not started already, you need to start thinking about shooting that bow and getting yourself ready for the season. So it is a perfect time for a very special guest and good friend of mine, Rich Wooten to come on. And Rich is a level three archery instructor um, he's coached um, at multiple different levels. He's coached with kids. He's helped adults. Um, and he's actually coached and had um, <clears throat> one of his one of his students uh, make the U.S. Youth Olympic team and had the opportunity to coach at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, California. So um, really excited to be able to share some some good content about archery. So. With that, I'd like to introduce Rich Wooten, and welcome aboard, Rich. Uh, thank you very much, guys. I appreciate you having me on, and you know me, I'll, I'll talk about archery for days, weeks, and years. It's kind of, it was the uh, one thing that I uh, always felt I was fairly decent at, and uh, always had a really great time out. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't, we, why don't you give the listeners a little more background info about you, and sort of how how you became interested in archery and, and what that process has been like for you. Well, I started, uh, I started shooting right around the age of about 13. I'm 47 now, so not quite a boomer, but eh, somewhere around there. Um, it all started, my mom actually went to a rummage sale and bought an old Ben Pearson. It was a recurve takedown bow. And my dad was not keen on the idea of me shooting um but then he had a friend come down from michigan and that guy was a bow hunter so of course he ran out and bought me some arrows and, and had me shooting in the backyard and my dad saw the drive that i had for it and how much i enjoyed it and uh, i got really really blessed really lucky I'm, I'm originally from muncie indiana and um there's an archery shop there that was uh, called paul's archery it was owned by the mckinney family and if you look up Really, if you look up any of the McKinney's and the McKinney family in the archery industry or anything like that, you'll see, you know, I was uh, Rick McKinney is you know, gold medalist, uh, world champion, national champion. I'm sure I got some of it wrong, but the guy's got more more credentials and medals than, than any 10 people I know. Um, and the funny thing is, Tim, Tim, he always said his brother Tim could outshoot him, but it came too easy for Tim. So he wasn't really the Olympian. Rick took it to that uh, took it to that level. So I was blessed enough to be able to, to shoot into get into that shop and have some of the, uh, you know, top archers at the time really starting to teach me to shoot. And it just kind of went from there, from, uh, from that age, uh, at about age 14, 15 is when I, uh, took my first deer with a bow and it was, a an old Browning Nomad deluxe wooden, wooden limb, wooden riser, um, the old 2117 aluminum Easton double X 75s. And I, I believe the broadhead was a thunderhead if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it was pretty awesome. Uh, and that got me hooked for sure. 
um, started shooting a lot of tournaments. Uh, when I say tournaments, um, I didn't do a lot of indoor. I did indoor leagues, but it started with the uh, IBO tournaments when IBO was just really fresh. Um, the outdoor animal targets, and that was unknown yardages. Um, a lot harder back in the day when you're lobbing an arrow at 265 feet per second, thinking you're really doing something fast. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, we all wanted that 300 mark. Eventually we got it. Um, when I turned, uh, when I turned 16, um, I ended up getting various sponsors to shoot and the kind of the rest is history. I, I've shot for various companies. I've been on pro staffs for, uh, play, uh, manufacturers. Uh, um, I was on a television show there in Wisconsin that was sponsored with Matthews. Uh, I was sponsored by Bowtech for a long time and PSE and archery research and, various aero companies and releases and so on and so forth. Um, and the other reason I tell you that is, is people really think that, that sponsorships are the greatest thing and, and you get free equipment, which was obviously great. Um, but I started figuring out what I wanted to shoot and then work for the sponsor from there because a lot of places would try to sponsor you, but the equipment to me just wasn't what I wanted. And we could go into that for weeks and months and years. And I learned, learned fairly quickly that there was not a piece of equipment, not any kind of uh, thing that you could buy to put on that bow that would replace good quality, uh, repeatable form. And what I mean by repeatable, what I do may not quite be what you do, but I'll try and you know, my goal was to teach the people to still shoot a repeatable form, but sometimes body mechanics are just a different. People have different size rhomboids. They have different, uh, they different shoulders, different uh, muscles and whatnot, and they can pull so much. But the form is still generally, generally the same. So as long as you had the form, I, I met guys that were really good um, outdoors. And those guys were equally as good indoors, but there were a lot of indoor guys that were not good outdoors. Now that, that had to do with, you know, the yardage judging and all that stuff. Yeah. So what drove me to, to coaching is a lot of people got into the archery kind of the same way I did. Um, that Browning bow that I was shooting was way too long for me. Um, it was a hand-me-down from a neighbor of some sort that my dad knew cousins, uncles, sisters, former roommate, or however that worked. And that's honestly how I think a lot of people get to shooting. You know, they their buddy has a bow. Hey, let me shoot that. We laugh because they struggle to pull back 60 pounds. It's, you know, an inch and a half too short or an inch and a half too long or three inches short or long or however that that is. And unfortunately, a lot of people start their archery career with a ton of bad habits. And they and they they perfect those bad habits to where they can at least be semi-accurate. And when I say semi-accurate, I mean a lot of people can kill a deer, no, no big deal. That's the size of a, you know, the, the vitals are what size of a, of a, of a plate, you know. Um, but my idea of accuracy is hitting something the size of a dime, thirty out of thirty times at twenty yards. So hitting something out of the size of a quarter at twenty yards, sixty out of sixty times. So that's kind of where I started going towards the coaching aspect of it, where I see people trying to buy their accuracy rather than really find a coach or find somebody that could really help them out. And I, I love getting new archers because they didn't have bad habits. It's the guys that had bad habits that were so hard to fix. 
Yep. And I, I figured, I figured that I had, I had put one on here where I was going to talk to you about, you know, put your coaching shoes on and what's your approach to someone new versus somebody who has been already shooting and which one do you prefer to work with? And I figured you were well, going to go down that road. So just keep, keep rolling with that. Okay. Um, so a lot of times um, when I'm starting with a brand new archer, uh, you're familiar with um, endless draw bows like the, like the Genesis. And I think there's another yep. few companies that, so I'll take a bow like that. And what I want to do is get it completely low poundage, you know, to where there's pretty much no weight because what I don't want, number one, I don't want injuries. Uh, number two, I want to work on getting the proper anchor point, being able to, have the proper grip and setting up the proper draw length from the very start. Um, having having somebody pull back a 60 pound bow 15 times in a row and they never even got to shoot the arrow, you know that gets that gets pretty daunting. But really getting them set up, you're able to still move them without the fear of them collapsing and that bow you know rocketing forward with them in it and about shooting them down the lane instead of anything else. Um, and get them get them set up that way. Uh, a lot of guys. My my biggest approach uh, with new archers was that way. Now, guys that have already shot, when I would when I would teach guys, and they say, "Hey, you know," uh, and it said, "What I'm going to say kind of sounds almost conceited," uh, and I don't mean it that way, but generally, free advice is worth every penny you paid for it. And what I mean by that is, you can generally a lot of people can shoot well, but they can't. They don't coach, and people usually go to the best archer there and go. Oh my goodness, you know, you're such a good archer. How can I uh how can I do what you do? And even they can't really explain to you, oh, you just anchor here, you do this. But how do you anchor? How do you how do you engage the the scapula? How do you rotate the 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 scapula and have the rhomboids engaged to make it easier to to draw back? What does the force draw curve look like on your bow? How high do you raise it? What does your elbow look like? So with somebody that has been shooting a while my very first lesson with them because i've gotten guys well that's how i do it well then why why am i why am i working with you buddy i mean i'm not trying to be mean but if you're wanting me to help you out i I love to help you out but a lot of times folks have to get worse before they get better and that was always fun uh trying to try to convince that some people of that and it it does it does work but back in the day i was super excited to have a camera that would record in slow motion. Now my phone today records in a slow motion where I can actually physically see a drop away, whether it drops or not, and whether it comes back up and makes contact with the arrow. The the cell phones today with the slow-mo are some of the greatest tools used for tuning that I've ever used in my entire life. And we all have one. But I would put a mirror on the ceiling and I would do nothing but let them shoot. I would videotape all aspects of the form from behind from the sides and then i would videotape the mirror up top so that you could see the actual alignment of the elbows on the shot um i would zoom in on you know whether you were punching that release whether you were torquing your bow so on and so forth that way when it eliminated a lot of the conversations of i'm not doing that well here's the video here's what we need to fix so we would we would approach it um almost like a uh, almost like a diagnostic of a car or maybe a you know a surgery you know here's what you're doing good here's what we need to fix now let's fix it yeah did you have a preference between working with fresh meat 
or getting somebody in there with the bad habits. I, I know, I know your personality, and I'm sure that that the the ones with the bad habits were a lot of fun for you. But which one would you prefer? I definitely prefer new archers. Um, they have no bad habits, so when you start from scratch, you only know the right way. So it, it that that is a tremendous a tremendous advantage to me. So real quick, Rich, I, I do have a question um, based off something that you mentioned. You, you said something about shooting at a lower draw weight. Um, and I'm wondering how much like a really heavy draw weight can affect your accuracy sometimes. Because I know that when I've had problems shooting my bow every now and then just getting into a funk, sometimes if I go back and shoot my old bow that is really, really low poundage that I can just sit and hold forever and ever and ever and not get tired and I can pull it back forever and not get tired. And I shoot that for one session or two sessions and then go back to my, my new bow, then I'm totally fine again. So I'm curious how much that draw weight can affect your accuracy. Well, being that we're all testosterone filled males, we all want to scream. I shoot 70, 80, 90 pounds. I'll never forget. There's a gentleman by the name of Ray Howell. He's a he's a just a tremendous uh, guy. He runs the Kicking Bear Camp for kids and stuff there in Wisconsin and all over the place. Just just an all around good dude. He was shooting, I believe, a hundred and five or a hundred and ten pound bow. Oh my gosh! And, oh, he's he's a monster, man. It, it's amazing. However, everybody would, oh, can I shoot your bow? He'd always laugh. So I asked him. I said, like, can I shoot your bow? Yep, sure. And he thought he was going to get a chuckle. Well, I stood out there and shot it and the look on his face, cause I'm not a massive dude, you know, I, but there is a way to, there is a way to properly draw a bow that allows you to engage the best muscles to get the best performance. Now with draw weight, I will say guys generally shoot well over what they should because they want to be able to sit at the bar and go, Oh, I'm shooting 328 feet per second. You know, good job. Um, I'll take a slow hit over a fast miss. Um, and it, it becomes, it's unfortunate because any, and we all know this cause we're guys I, and I do it. Don't think for a second. I don't, you know, we all let our ego get in the way sometimes. And, and the reason you shoot that other bow may be so good is it might not be the weight. It might be the four straw curve of the, of the cams. It might be the arrows that are set up on that. It might be the tuning. It might be, uh, just that bow fits you better at, at Maybe it's just a quarter inch, half inch shorter or longer than the draw length that you believe you have now. There's a lot more that will go into why you shoot that bow better. But I will tell you this, a lot of people shoot and practice. And I don't, I tell people it's not practice makes perfect. It's perfect to practice makes perfect. If all you do is go out there and shoot 10 perfect arrows, well, you've ingrained into your mind that man, I'm really good. What starts to happen when you fatigue is you start trying to force them. You start trying to force them in there and oh, one more shot, one, one more perfect X. I got it. And now you're fighting your subconscious mind. You're fighting your conscious mind. Everything goes to pot. And now you're, you're, you're verging on, you know, some, some bad habits and trying to force things where if all you did was throw five, six, seven arrows and they all hit right in that vital area or right in that heart or right in that tin ring or wherever you're trying to put them, that's pretty awesome. And that's a good feeling to walk away from. And it, and it builds from there. And you don't, 
yes, you should still build up your muscles, but at, you still got to make sure that you're hitting and you're, and you're not fatigued. Cause we all know when we get tired and fatigued, we start overthinking everything cause we're guys. It's just what we do. Right. That was me about a week and a half ago when I, when I dusted the case off and got the bow out and I was good through, through my first six. And then, yeah, I'm like, all right, I'm going to start trying to work on my endurance. So I'm, I'd hold my bow for a minute and I had a timer go and hold it for a minute and then try to shoot. And oh man, that, that <laughs> thing was just dancing all over the place. And I'm like, yeah, oh, yes. time to get back in shape. Yep. Grab the, grab the bands, uh, work with bands, you know, uh, when you're not doing it at work or whatever and walk around, you got time watching television. There's a set of muscles that don't get used very much. And it's mostly, you know, the archery muscles. So what I will say, I guess, to, to end that about draw weight, Draw weight will affect arrow flight a lot more, especially when you put um, when you end up with an arrow that's you accidentally chose that five grains per pound sort of thing, and it's weak. The spine ends up weak for seventy pounds, especially when you throw a broadhead on it. Field points, man, you're you're golden, but man, you throw a broadhead on there and suddenly things go awry and you can't figure out why. And a lot of guys don't want to back their poundage down. They I'm seventy pounds. Well, okay, that's okay, I guess, but. You got to match those arrows. Plus, I mean, look at what I did at, you know, 14, 15 years old. I'm shooting 50 pounds, a a round-on-round round wheel wooden bow. And my arrow went through the deer. I mean, yeah, we, we, we need to get accuracy back into the to the equation rather than – and it's it's funny because, like I said, I was the same way, especially IBO. Man, my, my bow is now shooting 300 feet per second. Never mind the fact that it sounded like a 22 going off every single time, and then I was shooting an ACE with an overdraw. Nope, don't worry yeah. about that. Just I was shooting 300 feet per second. Was I shooting it accurate? Yeah. Was I shooting six and seven hours uh, a day with breaks, obviously? Um, yeah. I'd leave school, go to the archery shop, and I'd spend the rest of my evening there, and yeah. we could get away with it. But today's today's archery, today's bows, they are just phenomenal machines and it's not really now it's not even the machine itself it's it's never been the the bow it's the indian yeah all right so let's start diving into the the shooting form a little bit i know that there are there are 10 steps of shooting form so let's let's go through those and um, from there we can talk about you know which ones are the most common um, that people make mistakes with well, when you, when I say 10 steps to the shooting form, I'm really talking a lot about target archery and whatnot because yeah. it starts it starts in your head, obviously. Um, we get into our head way too much. Um, but you end up, you know, it, it's from the quiver. Then you got, you're knocking your arrow. You've got your set when you're, you're, you're set, get setting up for the shot. And at that time, you should do some visualization of, you know, hey, this, this arrow needs to go here. And picking that spot that you're going to aim at, then you have your draw. Once you draw back, of course, you're going to to get your anchor point. Should be a good solid anchor point. Uh, anchor point gets really really tricky sometimes with some folks, um, but as long as you have a, I never get too upset with people, as long as their anchor point is consistent. A lot of people though draw a bow that's way too long for them, and that they can't seem to figure out how to put their, the tip of their nose on the string. Instead, it's got to go all the way back. Their eyeballs almost touching the peep sight and whatnot. So once you're drawn back to that, to that anchor point, 
you that's I always started the mental game uh, as far as a program goes there because inevitably what happens, especially in target archery, is you have a you have two things going on. You have your 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 conscious mind, your subconscious mind, and they often often don't work together very well. So when you're aiming at that point, you've got your anchor point, you're, you've got your sight alignment. Now you're going to do the aiming process. You put that pin on the center of the target. Now you're, you're starting to activate your release, however that is, whether you're using back tension, whether you just got the finger rolling or whatever you're doing. I'm not going to, you know, fault somebody for the, you know, the punch and pray method because we all know that sometimes on a deer, that's kind of what you got to do and hope for the best. Um, so once you start aiming and that site, let's say that site, uh, drops. Okay. Well, your subconscious mind has already put that pin back in the middle. Problem is your conscious mind goes, Oh, well it dropped. I've got to, I've got to move it up a half inch. Well, your subconscious mind already moved it up a half inch and it was going to drift back up there. But now you've moved it, and now you moved a half inch above it. And now you're like, oh, now I'm a half inch above. Now you start to move, oh, now I'm a half inch right, but your subconscious mind is trying to fix it, but your conscious mind is fighting it. Now you're moving that thing all over the center of the target. Okay, And that, that, that becomes a fight that a lot of people have. Um, when you have a good setup bow and you have a really good, something you can get away with, um, you can get away with a lot of bad things on the back side of that string as long as you have a very, very rock-solid bow arm holding that thing out and upon that release having an amazing follow-through, meaning that bow just goes and that front arm does not move and it stays there. But a lot of times we get that habit of, hey, where'd that arrow go? Problem is the arrow ain't gone yet. Yeah. And you drop that bow arm, same way with deer, same way when you have to hold a bow back for a minute and a half while that doe is staring directly at you because apparently your cameraman made a motion when you drew back and now you're both busted so you're stuck um a true story um yep you go to release man and you don't have anything left in that arm and it just all falls and the arrow shaves the belly and she runs off laughing at you um but that's you can get away with a lot as long as you have that really good solid bow arm and a great follow through, uh, provided yeah. everything's set up right and and whatnot. That's that's going to be a, a major portion. If I can only, if I can re reiterate only really one thing: a good a good clean release, but that good follow through with that front bow arm and not letting it fall to the ground, not looking for that arrow. You know, after you shoot, just letting things happen. And that's the same way with the release. But we all know, I mean, let's be realistic. You know, you've seen some of the bucks I've shot, man. Yeah. There ain't no squeezing and, and ooh, hey, it's target. It's going to sit now, man. It's, it's Hail Mary full of grace. Please let this let, hit this deer where I'm, where I'm aiming sometimes. And yeah. the, the Spartans had a, a saying, as we train, so shall we fight. I quit shooting competition about a month before our season. <laughs> future archer right um but uh, that, is, that is a future archer right there my my daughter just got home she can't to say hello to me so i'm gonna, well, I'm gonna put mine on mute i'm gonna i'm gonna put mine on mute for a minute here 
and I'll jump. I'll let you know when I'm jumping back in. Yeah, that's fine. That's beautiful. All right, go be a dad. We'll we'll carry things from here for a little bit. Nice. Um. So, I guess as far as the those the well, I, I'm not going to break it down as step one. This is step two, step three. That's for a whole. Because breaking those down, I would go into exactly what each one of those entail, and that's that's an extensive uh, discussion right. as to how to correct things, making sure you have the proper grip, not canning your bow. Not there's a whole long list of ways to make sure you've got good, solid, repeatable form with a good, solid follow through. So I see people who seem to know what they're doing. Maybe it's on YouTube or on TV. They're professionals in the industry, decent shooters. And a lot of times what I see from their follow through is like they, they, the shot goes off and then they drop their bow straight down. And, and it seems like when they drop it straight down, that's made to seem like that's the best way of doing something. But from what you're describing, it sounds like it's better probably to hold it steady, at least for a second. Well, well, the, the, Today's bows, the beauty of it is those arrows are gone most of the time before that that arm falls. And they're not really dropping that bow. The bow is just kind of rocking forward at a, at a natural, um, because all archery will ever be is, is physics, okay? So it's going to be a transfer of kinetic energy. The energy only has a few places to go. It, ha- it can go into the bow itself, it goes into the arrow, and it goes into you. So how much energy gets transferred to that arrow? Okay, great. So you see them dropping that arm, but they're not really dropping an arm. The the, the bow is actually rocking forward, going forward. The weights are, are sending the bow uh, basically down. Um, and those weights are great for offsetting the, the pulling of the bow. It's just kind of an offset, you know, again, physics. You know, it's, it's just – and learning to weight your bow properly and depending on the stab- size of the stabilizer – this is all competition type stuff. Smaller stabilizers for hunting. I I shoot a very heavy stabilizer for hunting, a very heavy weighted front stabilizer. Um, I always have to each his own, you know. Um, but yeah, if you watch those guys, they're not actually dropping from the shoulder and you don't see their elbow falling down. You see the bow moving, but their hand will not collapse or fall. Gotcha. Yeah. How how tight should so, your grip be on like on, on your grip hand? How how tight should you be holding that? Because I've heard some different things. So, getting a death grip on a bow is a bad thing. There's a um, and it's hard without being able to show you, but you've got got the that that bone kind of uh, let's see, you got your lifeline, you got your thumb. There's a bone that that travels through, um. And your hand is actually almost at a 45-degree angle, pretty close to it, open. And when I say open, I don't mean open with pressure. I mean just relaxed. Um, You're not trying to put any extra pressure. The goal is to have that bone as centered on the center shot of that bow. Because any pressure on the left, you kick left. Any pressure on the right, you kick right. Um, And they consider that corking a bow. And again, some weights and stuff can help with that. But ultimately, you know, you're going to want to put the pressure as, as centered as you can. And you'll see you'll see the fingers, if they're relaxed, you'll see them really almost canted at an angle. It's kind of hard to explain if you, if you can't actually see it. But you'll see a lot of guys, and, there's, and, and it is a, a personal preference for a lot of guys. Some guys have what they call a low-risk grip. 
Some people have a high-risk grip. It, it, it just depends on really what works for you. I never get too upset with people that, you know, there's no, there's no just one size fits all with archery. That's the beauty of it. Some guys shoot a high risk grip and they're just lights out with it. I can't do that. I shoot a low risk grip. Am I, am I back in here now? Yeah. If you're back, yeah. you're back. Perfect. That's, that's great stuff. Um, I wanted to, Noah, did you have anything else you wanted to talk on that with the grip before I throw you completely off? No, you can throw it wherever you want to. Okay. Um, Just going back to Rich when you initially started talking about the 10 steps, um, and that's for competition shooting, I just want to point out that I, I think that going through that, whether it's competition or hunting, is super super important um, for sure you know when when you when you have a deer standing in front of you and any deer but especially if it's a big buck you know that's that's when a lot of bad habits come and some people black sure. out or whatever i don't remember the shot or whatever you know whatever fever. happens <laughs> a little buck fever right but right I, and i think you can't undersell the importance of the mental part of archery and the only way that you're going to get mentally strong with archery is if you practice that way every time and you have a routine that you go through every time so you know i just don't i don't want to diminish those, those no you early, you're early steps correct. That talked about. yeah you're you're definitely 100 percent correct on that and i don't i don't mean to diminish it that way uh, because I, I had a, a mental coach. His name was Lanny Basham. If you ever look him up, he was a phenomenal rifle shooter. And him and his son started developing a process for archery because they, they started realizing just how much any shooting sport is, is mental. So the, the things in hunting, when you're up in a tree stand, you're actually skipping a few steps because your, your, your arrow hopefully is already knocked. We all know that we've gotten up there and tried to get things ready. And all of a sudden you turn around and there he is. Whoops. Um, it's a, it, trust me, if you hunt with me, something can and can and will go wrong because that's just that's just Murphy's law. But um, having a set pattern, I had one kid. It was so fun. I don't know why he started doing it, but when he drew an arrow from his quiver, he would spin it. It was the coolest thing. He would like spin it into his bow and then knock. It. I was like, I don't know, almost like a drumstick, and that all became part of his shot process. And it was just he once he went into that mental focus, and you're a hundred percent correct when you say, you know, a lot of people just draw back, oh, I can see the peep sight, peep sight, okay, there's a sight sort of on the deer, bam, and let her rip. You still have to anchor, you still have to get sight alignment, you still have to pick a spot. And and I'll tell you the greatest it's kind of a funny story. It was a it was not a huge buck, um, but one of my first. And I wanted to pick a spot, man. I didn't want to get buck fever and have everybody making fun of me because Lord knows we don't need that. Um, no. <laughs> so, of course, hunters are always the politest to the guys that miss, including them. You know, that's how we work. Um, you know, we, we encourage, well, you'll get him next time. No, that's not how we work. Um, it's a trial by fire. So I was going to draw back and I watched this buck cross this field. I had, I had done some rattling. This was out by the old reservoir in Muncie, Indiana. I was hunting some private land. I'm watching this buck come to me and he's out there about 45 yards working his way and he gets about 20 yards and I'm looking at him. I'm thinking, all right, cool. There's this 
I mean, God must have blessed him with the worst birthmark ever because there was this small spot right behind the shoulder, and it was visible at about 18 yards. And I thought, that's the spot. That's what I'm going to aim at. And he, he bent down to eat some of the soybeans out of the field. Um, it was a soybean field, not baited. Um, I drew back, got my form. You know, I'm, I'm anchored. I lower that down, and I get it right on there. My goal was to hit this. And I, I squeezed the boom. It took off. Arrow hit him. He took off running. And I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure I got him. You watch him. He got about halfway across the field did the old stop and look around and all of a sudden, you know, take two steps back and do the kick and chicken type thing. And I, and I about fell out of the tree saying, no, I'm ecstatic at this point. Like, Holy cow. I just shot my first basket right eight buck, which to me might as well be my first booner, you know? Um, yep. But when I went to go get him, that thing that was on his side was a ginormous tick. <laughs> and I had cut just a portion of that tick. And I was like, well, it's a heck of a spot to pick. So the importance yep. of there, there was a lot, a lot of archers would tell me I can't hit the broad side of a barn with a bow. I said, okay, so what I want you to do, and, and you guys can do this and, and play along because this is kind of fun. So what I want you to do is picture a barn, just picture a barn. Okay, cool. Now I want you to picture the doors on that barn, big red barn, white stripes on the door, white cross. In the middle of that barn, there's a clasp. That clasp has a, a master lock on it, okay? You can see the master lock, and if you, if you squint really hard, you see the A in the word master on that master lock. I promise you, if you aim for that A, even if you miss a lot, you're still going to hit that barn. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So... Um... Just kind of going off of that, what would you what would you say of of some of those different different steps or parts of the shot? What are the top three most common errors that people are making when they're when they're shooting? Uh, the first to me is follow through. The shot is not finished until the shot is finished. Um, that's going to be the top top on my list. Um, the the next two right there are, are going to be side alignment, which has to do with anchor point. Um, a lot of people will will move their head to the peep site because an archery shop set them up and okay, cool, I can see through the peep site, I can see my my housing. And there's a there's something to be said about the proper size peep housing versus the the proper size housing on a um on the site itself. Um, they should pretty much line up. You've got the little white glowing things. You can move your site in and out to adjust. That's a whole different discussion. But getting that site alignment and that proper. So what I do with a lot of guys to get their peep site, once they've got a decent anchor point, we put a peep site in. I tell them, okay, draw your bow back, get your anchor point. And they draw it back and they get their anchor point with their eyes closed. And when they open their eye, they're like, can't see through my peep. Yeah, because it's not in the right spot. Okay, you naturally are coming back with your eyes closed to the same spot every time, and your peep is too high, it's too low. It was just put because they put it there, and they put it there before they developed a good solid anchor point, and you're moving your face to your peep site instead of you're moving your anchor point based on where your peep site is rather than having a good solid foundation on the side of the face, uh, knuckle under the ear, whatever you do. There's a lot of different variations. There's no 
right or wrong answer. Some are better than others. But setting up that peep site for you is is absolutely paramount. The funny thing is, I, I can see, I, I can totally tell you right now, I think Noah's going to go draw his bow back tonight with his eyes closed. He's like, wait a minute. And oh, yeah. That could you 100% back, be true. Closed, <laughs> if you draw back with your eyes closed and you can see completely through that peep site, completely round and you're good, golden. But do it a couple of times to see if you do truly have a solid anchor point. And the next, of course, is going to be when I say follow through, that includes the elbow position upon the release, making sure the elbow comes straight back and it's not it's not pointed down, it's not pointed uh, out away from the archer because what happens is you pull that string away from the face upon release. So I, I think the three the three one three that I'll I'll pick definitely follow through, uh, sight picture and sight alignment, um, and then the release itself, um, and being able to get a good solid crisp release. Uh, surprise release is the best. It's not always going to happen on a deer, as we know. I mean, because you, you've got the guys that, you know, you, you've done it. I've done it. And we all know what this means. Meh. Now yeah. he stopped. You ain't got a whole lot of time to start activating rhomboids and start pushing here and pulling there and, and getting a. You've got to kind of make things happen. So it it, it is definitely important to be able to to get a good squeeze but you can also get a controlled punch if <laughs> you have to. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, either a good, a good squeeze or a controlled punch. I know one of the things that, I don't know, this probably 15 years ago um, when when you and I were, were shooting together, uh, one of the, the best things that you did for me was I had my release, and um, it wasn't a great release because I was still pretty new at it, uh, but the the trigger on my release was all the way up almost to the tip of my finger and you cranked that thing back so that it was at, at the first at my first knuckle away from my hand just like you'd shoot with a with a rifle where you got to get your whole finger in there and, and squeeze that was one of the best things that that you did for me with with my shooting uh because it eliminates not to say that I never punch anymore but it eliminates so many of my my punch shots that I used to have because I actually have to squeeze with my finger in order to be able to to release my my arrow. Right. So, a wait. lot of a lot of unfortunate. I don't know how I don't know how I, I still use the old Scott release that I used back in the nineties um, because it goes off when enough pressure is put there and it fits in my hand perfectly. So I, I make it as you know to that short. But I see tons of, tons of people shooting releases that. They have to literally cock their wrist to try and reach up to grab a hold of that release. And when I say grab, I mean, you're up there trying to hook that bad boy. And, and that re that release is just too long for you. And and it's minor things like that. It, it, to me, it was, you know, to you, it's like, wow, that's a minor adjustment. That's a major adjustment to me in bow fit and and release fit and everything else. When everything fits, it, it tends to do a little better. And most guys shoot too long of a, a draw length uh, nine times out of ten. Yep. So the anchor point is something that keeps coming up, and I'm sure most listeners are familiar with with the idea of an anchor point. Um, can you help to just narrow that down a little bit more? And I know everyone's is a little bit different, but what are sure. what are two or three things to kind of think about as you're trying to come up with a solid anchor? Uh, that starts out, remember when I when I was talking about the bow being super low poundage, that keeps you from, you know, 
worrying about you know that bow going off or all that poundage you're trying to hold it just becomes a natural where does this feel really good some people's facial structure um has natural contours i like with mine and with my hunting bow it's completely different with a competition bow because i shoot a completely different type of release i shoot a thumb release and, and things like that but with my my hunting bow the knuckle on my index finger goes pretty much right behind and right in that if my ear was pierced you'd be able to feel the piercing so it's like kind of right where that jawbone is and i and it's jammed right there because that takes that string pushes it against my face the string runs right through the tip of my nose and i can see right through that peep sight so not only do i have a, a spot on my you know basically on my face where my hand belongs but now i have a space on the string where my nose belongs and right there on the corner of my mouth belongs and now i can see through my peep sight so technically there's basically three to four pieces of contact that are on that string that are making things uh, repeatable you want to make sure that they're they're always in the same spot and and that it gets kind of tricky sometimes especially with new archers that's why again i love the really low poundage bows to work on a solid foundation first yeah I think I think that that's that's a good good breakdown uh, for people for people to think about whatever those points are. Um, make sure you have multiple points of contact. Um, actually, rather whether you're new or experienced. Um, so, yeah, I made the switch over to fixed blades a few years back, and um, one of the things that I was having trouble with is I would uh, I'd draw back and. I'd shoot my field points and be able to hit a dime every time. Well, then I'd put my my fixed blades on, and and I was always missing. I believe it was to my right, and um, so I took took it into the archery shop and said my my bow is not my bow is not tuned. And I shot it through paper. They said, Oh no, your bow is perfectly tuned. And I just had I don't know if I got fatter or what, but I had too much pressure from my face on my string, which with a field point wasn't a big deal, but once you put that broadhead on there that's a little bit bigger, you know, that just changes, that changes the arrow flight, so. Broadheads exacerbate not only um, non-repeatable form, but they will exacerbate anything that is a is not right with the, with the spine of the arrow or any deviations of the spine within the dozen arrows. Yeah. Perfect. A lot of guys, a so lot of guys, their first reaction is, well, I'll just switch to expandables, mechanicals. The, to me, I never got upset. And, and some people will just jump through the phone, you know, you're ready to strangle me for this. I really don't care if my field points hit exactly where my broadheads hit because two weeks before the season, I don't have a, I don't have a field point in my quiver. And I shoot sharp, you know, uh, broadheads that I'm able to resharpen. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm getting good quality arrow flight, good straight forward arrow flight, if they're hitting two inches to the left, an inch or so low, what do I really care? Um, I'm going to sight my broadheads in. I'm going to make sure I'm getting good flight. A lot of people get so, a lot of people can't even paper tune their bow because they're they're torquing their bow. Their form is not good enough. I, I I remember working at the archer shop. So many people would get mad because 
look at this tear. I can't get this tear. I would shoot their bow and it'd be a bullet hole. Mm-hmm. Well, you got to tune it for me. Well, I, I can't tune it for you because <laughs> I, this arrow is not designed to come out of this bow the way you're making it come out. You're torquing your grip or you're, again, like you said, pushing your face against it, maybe a little too hard. Maybe your anchor point's a little, you know, you're, you got your elbow pushing back a little bit too far, which is causing the string to come in. Maybe you're, you're, you're coming out a little too far and your, your elbow is going out and pulling that string away from your face right at that moment of release. So as long as the arrow is flying really good, you got good form and the arrow is flying good, it never, ever bothered me to recite in for the season and only use broadheads. And the, the biggest reason, there's a, there were several reasons I switched to these broadheads. One, I love the fact that I can resharpen these things. And when I'm out there and that buck is standing there at 52 yards, that broadhead that I've got in that bow is the exact broadhead that I was smacking a, a, a quarter size circle with time and time again. Something to be said about that confidence and having knowing 100%. Some guys will have three practice broadheads and then they got there are three real broadheads and there's a real real problem with that and we can we can definitely explore that one yeah awesome um just to wrap up this first section here on on form um earlier you talked about bands what are what's another drill or two that people can do just to just to improve their form and consistency uh with with shooting so a couple things that i worked with archers with um it was funny. I'd leave, I'd leave a seminar. Um, I, I did shooting seminars for people and, and shooting classes in bulk classes. And I would teach what they call blank bail, which is you, you, you take your sight completely off. There's no sight picture that you have to worry about now. All I want you to do is worry about actual shot process and actual form itself. This is, take the sight out of it. And a lot of times if you take that sighting out of it, then we're working on nothing but release follow through you know you've got all that going for you so if all you can do for let's say 20 30 shots is get maybe five yards away from a a a big bale for the love of god please have a big bale because you can shoot with your eyes closed once you draw back with no sight no nothing you can use the sight on there if you want as long as you're going to promise me you keep your eyes closed um you take your sight off you draw back and you just you concentrate on every piece of that form so you can feel and that muscle memory. The Spartans, again, like they say they, they say had a saying, as we train, so shall we fight. If you train crappy, you're gonna fight just the same way. Same way with the shooting form. If you get out there and just fling some arrows, cool on close, well, that's how you're gonna perform. But if you get on blank bills, and I had to do this with a lot of guys, and I don't want to mention what 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 it was a cure for. As a lot of people, you hear the word and you get all freaked out about it. But once you started getting people to get back to basics with a proper fit bow, most of your form issues, most of your missing, most of your inaccuracy issues end up with actual bow fit. A lot of people, again, I say, shoot a bow that's too long for them. And being able to shoot on a blank bale, no target, no nothing, just working on nothing but pure 100% form and and i and i can say it a million times guys will buy the latest greatest site and it, they don't they don't they, they don't even blink an eye at spending two and three hundred dollars on a site and they'll buy a fourteen hundred dollar bow but they will not pay a coach they won't find somebody to pay to teach them to shoot they'll just ask for questions watch some internet videos and 
but the internet can't tell you, hey, this is what you're doing because I have it on video. Here's how we fix it. Because um, you're not, you cannot buy accuracy. You can, you can buy some stuff. I mean, give you an idea. Are you familiar with what the Hooter shooter is? The Hooter shooter, no. That was a machine that was designed for archery shops. It basically was as close to a shooting machine for a bow as you could get. It was, it oh, was damn yeah. near, yeah. It was, it was damn near the the equivalent of, uh, you know, the same thing every time. So just for fun, we took a Genesis bow and 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 five arrows, and we shot a perfect score on an NFAA target with the Hooter shooter. I don't know anybody at 20 yards that could take a Genesis bow and shoot a perfect score at 20 yards. I don't know anybody. Maybe there's somebody out there. I'm sure there is. However, that proved one major thing to a lot of people. Repeatable form that is, 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 even if it's ugly form, but you do it the same way, is accuracy. And that's the same. Jay Bars won the gold medal with a recurve that had a twisted limb. It had a twisted limb. The thing is, it was twisted the same way every time he shot. So people get really into, well, I need to change my release. I need to, and there is something to be said about better releases. We, we, we definitely go all over that, but they'll, they'll change their rest. They'll change their, they'll get a new site and they'll shoot really well with that new site for a little while and then kind of get back into the, the generalized accuracy. And sometimes that has to do with the mental game because a lot of guys, when they just, just for reference, a 300 with 60 X on an NFAA target is a perfect score. So let's say a guy shoots a lot and he's always a 300 with 50x shooter. Well, he's shooting good. He's shooting good. And in his mind, he goes, man, I'm going to shoot 300 with, now I'm almost at 58 X's. I can promise you about the next six shots, he's going to miss those X's because he got in his head and got excited and, oh, I'm out of my comfort zone. And now we're suddenly going back to where we're comfortable. He misses those. And then he, and he finishes up with a, a 300 with 50 X's. Happens all the time. So if you're going to do anything to improve form, go ahead and take the sight picture out of it. Close your eyes, go on a blank bail, and really work on what feels good, what what is a good repeatable form. So I'm kinda I'm kinda wondering something now because we keep talking about um these shops and taking your bow in, getting it tuned or or whatever, but I'm wondering if you have any advice for picking a shop that really knows what they're doing because obviously there's some good and some bad like we mentioned with the peep site right like they might just set it up a certain way and then you have to um, adjust the way that you shoot to make that peep site work but do you have any tips for finding a shop that's going to do things the right way to get you set up better i wish i did i really wish i i don't guys (laughs) I've gone in and, and talked to guys and they don't know who I am in, in these places. And they'll start telling me about things that I'm like, what are you talking about? But if you're a new archer, you don't, you don't know any different. So it, it people can talk a great game and it's the same. I always called it, you know, I, I, I was a, a police officer for years and I always tell people, people know what it's like to be in a firefight, especially those people who have never been in one. So you end up with a lot of what they call keyboard commandos, keyboard warrior. These people read some articles and they just regurgitate what they do. Um, 
I, I had the privilege of working with some of the best um, bow manufacturers and bow designers um, in the industry and went to some of these technical schools that really not only taught, taught you how. So, I mean, I guess if you want to want to see if they'd been to any of those schools, I know PSC put on a great school. They probably still do. Um, Matthews, Matt McPherson is just a great guy. Um, they put on a great school. I don't know if Hoyt's still doing it, but you might check some of those. But again, um, I learned, honestly, I learned to tune and work on all my own stuff because there is no archery shop around that is going to do a better job and take more time on your bow than you. And that's kind of the same way with anything. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to clean your car better than you because you're meticulous. So it, it, it becomes very difficult to gauge, you know, what shop is going to do the best job. And let's face it, you know, it's not like these shops are paying somebody eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year to work there. You know, they get a kid and they train them the basics, or they get a somebody that's retired or something like that. Um, you can always ask how long they've been in business. A shop that's been in business for 25, 30 years, they probably have a decent idea of what they're doing. Um, but again, I, I don't have any great I've had even some of the what I thought were some of the best shops do some of the stuff that I just I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Um, heck, the shop I worked at, a kid, I was building custom bowstrings, and I get a call, hey, your bowstring broke. I'm like, what? I mean, that's a physical impossibility. It's brand new. And I go in there, and this kid was taking a lighter to, you know, to the, the peep site where you, where you tie it in, right? But he didn't yeah. think that it would bother if the flame went across the string. Huh. Who does that? So... And this is a reputable shop. So it's it's always good to to try to get a, get your hands on good, reliable information. And there's some amazing shooters out there that put out some great information. I'm not going to, you know, put a bunch of plugs out for the professional shooters, but there's some really good videos on out there. And you can watch it and you can try it. You can try it yourself. Don't be scared. But I used to get in trouble a few times when I'd look at somebody and I'd ask him, you know, tell me what was wrong with this bow before you tried to fix it. Yep, that's a great question. Probably nothing. Well, uh, I was that guy at the archery shop. I had my own form. Once I did somebody set up somebody's bow brand new, we got it all tuned up, paper tuned, super tuned, the whole nine yards. I took calipers and micrometers and I measured everything and i put their name and their piece of paper because we weren't using computer files at that time in a file so number one when i had to change their strings and cables well you didn't have to change a cable sometimes because they were steel but once we moved to you know the the 452x the and all the the cool new strings and stuff but i would measure everything that way number one i could tell whether you moved something or not and number two when i had to replace your stuff and get it once I put it all back together and you ran out to the range, your sights were almost dead on again. I don't believe you get that kind of service um, at a lot of shops. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Yeah, definitely. As long as we're on the shops, um, we can just do a quick overview here on, on, on bow setup. I think maybe we'll have you back another time and talk 
in more depth about this and get into some of the bow tuning and, and the different specific pieces of your bow, but someone who's looking to, to buy a new bow, um, what which attributes of the bow would you consider to be the most important? Are you gonna guide someone towards a single cam, double cam? Uh, what are you gonna recommend as far as their height versus axle to axle, limb strength? Cetera, I guess the cetera, first thing I'm gonna ask them is, what what are you wanting to do? And a lot of guys, well, I wanna shoot some 3Ds and I wanna hunt. Okay, cool. There's a lot of great bows out there. You have to remember, a lot of guys, the first, what do you think the first thing they ask about a bow is? How fast is it? How much weight does it, it how, much, how much weight can the limbs hold? Or how much weight am I pulling back? Generally, I found, how fast is it? Yeah. And how fast is this bow? And that's the interesting part because we can get into bow manufacturers and what they've done to fudge their numbers a little bit from an AMO standard, the Archer Manufacturer Organization standard, um, where they're saying, so a lower brace height generally changes the four straw curve. A lower brace height equals speed, but it also has a loss of accuracy. If you have a higher brace height, you generally have a more forgiving bow, but a slower bow. Axle to axle, same thing. When you get into a shorter axle to axle bow, you do lose some uh, forgiveness. I'm not, I shouldn't say accuracy. I should say forgiveness because they're all accurate. Every bow is accurate. You can put it in a hooter shooter and prove it. It's what's good for you. So new archers, um, even even if they're new and they're wanting to do just strictly hunting, I'm going to get them in a pretty short axle to axle bow because we all know, you know, we've been in that situation where you you can't take a, a you know a you know, a 36 inch axle to axle bow up there. That's just not going to happen. Um, and bows have come so, so far, you know, as far as forgiveness and, and whatnot. Uh, we definitely, we want to budget first, you know, what is your budget? Because it, you don't want to start having somebody shoot a $1,400 bow who's only wanting to spend $600. Um, that's just not, that's kind of cruel actually. Um, and, a real yes, tip for people, I don't want to make anybody feel bad about not being able to spend a $1,400 bow, and I don't want anybody to feel bad about shooting the bow that they shoot. A lot of a lot of shops make the mistake of getting very brand-oriented and trying to say, oh, you don't want to shoot that, you know, you want to shoot this bow, you don't want to shoot that brand, oh, this bow's, this brand's better, so on. You instantly, because some people are diehards, man. Some people are diehard Bowtech, Matthews, Hoyt. You know, these people have been shooting these things for years. I don't, me personally, I don't care. I'll just, whatever feels good to me, I'll shoot it. That's how I am now. I used to have to shoot specific brands, but there's not a bow I can't pick up and, and get tuned up and, and get it ready for deer season. Um, with new archers, you know, what's your, what is your budget? And I'm talking arrows and everything. Don't just tell me your bow budget because I don't want you to buy a, you know, great bow and have, you know, $35 left over and trying to buy a, you know, some, some arrows to, to throw through that because that's the equivalent of, you know, buying a, a precision rifle and seeing if you can get bulk military surplus ammo in a can. Hmm. Um, so that 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 that, that kind of selling people bows, um, I always gave them you know three, four, five options if I could. But if that's if it's their draw length and the poundage they want, I generally took the poundage down about five or six pounds of what they actually wanted. Um, and that wasn't me being mean. That's 
people generally, I want 70 pounds. Cool. We'll just put this at 65, 64 pounds. It's a little more smoother for you. Yes, you can push it up to 70. And again, the four straw curve of that, meaning how that bow draws back. Um, you've seen extreme hatchet cams that when you start to pull that thing back, you feel like your eyeballs are going to pop out of their socket. And so is your, so is your shoulder. And then you pulled bows back that are 70 pounds that are, wow, this is really smooth. You've got to give to get. So you're not, you can still get smooth and pretty fast, but when you're talking rocket bows, these bows that are shooting, you know, those 350 feet per second, buddy, when you start to pull that bow back, there it is. There's no, there's no kind of ease in that thing back. So new archers need to be, I think we need to be very mindful of not only, we don't want to cause injury. And, and you've seen the guys let their ego get in the way and they'll, they'll start trying to reap this bow back and they're, they're hurting themselves. So whatever you go case by case, man, you really do. Cause are you going to shoot a lot? Are you going to shoot a little, um, you know, what, have you ever drawn a bow back before? Uh, so people that haven't, I mean, giving them some crazy hatchet cam type bow with really extreme cams, um, could turn them off to, to archery in general. Um, and the, the beauty of the one cam bows is that, yeah, they are easier to tune and whatnot and generally more, you know, more user friendly, so to speak. But now you have, you know, you've got the binary cam systems and the, this doesn't go out of time and this doesn't do this and this, does, they all do, man, the string stretch, everything. And that, that's where, you know, having a good pro shop, I've got a pro shop in my house. I've got the bow press, the arrow saw, I've got everything here. I, I haven't stepped foot into an archery shop to have anything done in probably 10 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think just talking about the, the weight. So, I mean, my, my bow is a 70 pound, has 70 pound limbs on it. And I had it cranked up to that and I can, I could pull that back. No problem. Um, but I had a, my shoulder was bugging me a couple of years ago and it was just like stressful to be able to, to pull that back. Um, I figured out it was something to do with my spine and, and I need to go to a chiropractor and that wrapped it up, but I cranked it down to 62 just to take some of that, you know, pressure off and I've never moved it back up. Like Funny I, how that works. I, I don't, I don't need to move it back up. What What's no. the point? I'm still shooting a fastball. It's, but when there's an animal standing there, I don't need to have to reef to get the thing back. It's just a nice, easy, smooth draw. Right. And you and I both have hunted Wisconsin, and you know darn good well. You get out there, you're sitting there. That buck's going to come by at 730. Man, he's been coming by 730 on the trail cam. 730 comes and goes, and now you're out there at 11 o'clock, and you've been sitting out in, you know, seven-degree weather. Yeah. And now here he comes. Are your muscles warm? Are they are they good to go to pull back that full 70 pounds? Or is it going to be just a smidgen easier to pull back that 62 pounds and get a good smooth draw where you don't have to make a lot of motion? Because Lord knows that matriarch doe standing out there scanning the wood line and the tree line, because that's what she does, will pick up any movement. And the the easier and simpler, the, the, the less movement you can do to draw that bow straight back to you, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. Your bow could be 350 feet per second. Great. Can you draw it back without getting caught? You've seen it. I've never seen an animal that can actually drink water through the side of their face while looking at you. 
other than a white tail doe. <laughs> Absolutely. And she'll do it every time. And just you and I both know, all right, cool, she's eating grass. No, she's not. She's going to go down and eat grass and quickly go, hey, I see you. Like, I'm, I'm going to bring my head back up just to see if you're drawing. And then I'm going to put it back uh, down. Nope, just kidding. Okay, no, I'm going to drink. Nope, I'm kidding. And and we've had it happen countless. If you hunt the woods enough, it's going to happen. You're going to get busted. And the worst animal in the woods to get bust, busted by, it isn't that buck. He's going to get horny during the freaking rut. He's going to screw up because guys chasing, chasing gals, we've been getting ourselves messed up doing that for many years in every animal kingdom. But that matriarch, though, she's got babies to worry about. She busts you in that tree stand. You you have two options: move or figure out a way to kill her. Yep. My last year, my first two opportunities as a shooter. Not that it took me real long. It was the second weekend, but first first opening day, big buck was out there. He didn't bust me, but the doe that was out there busted me. Right. It, you'll you'll laugh. Out. You'll you'll laugh same, at my same buck following Friday. There you go. Come walking in with the same doe. And coming right towards me, and I didn't get busted, but a raccoon jumped out of the corn enough to spook the doe, and he's gone. You know, just it's not the buck usually. Yep, he he'll get his nose down to a scent he likes, and he'll start chasing a female, and he will screw up. They're actually fairly easy to to hunt, but you want you want a challenge. Take that big matriarch doe that that back in the day, and I, I hate to say that back in the day because I'm only 47. It's not like I'm you know like I'm ancient, but we had tree stands and we had the old Baker tree stands, which were basically death on plywood um, that you put the, you know, step wrong and you're going to fall out. That's just how that works. Um, they were dangerous, but that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> um, but back in the day, we got up in the trees, but bro, there were no deer. There were no deer looking up. There's no reason for a deer to look up. Why are they looking up? They don't. However, as time went on, Baby doe, little 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 fawn deer, little little you know, out there eating. All of a sudden, mom gets smoked by something. They looks up, they see the shadow moving around up in a tree, and they take off running. Mom's dead. What the heck? And deer deer don't have the ability to reason. However, they have the ability to stay safe. And through the years, I watched the evolution of of these does and a lot of these deers. They will stop in the field and scan the top of the trees. They will scan the tree line. You can see them looking up. And deer don't look up. That's not naturally looking up for a predator. What predator is going to eat a full-size doe that flies? And the answer is nothing. It's us. So now ground blinds I'm finding are becoming pretty, pretty good things for some of these, some of these animals that are scanning the wood line. If you've never seen a uh, a doe come out or a buck come out and start scanning the wood line. Watch where they're looking. It's not always the ground. They'll pick their head up and they'll scan everything. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, let's move on. Um, like I said, we'll come back to come back to the <clears throat> bow set up on a different one, but Let's talk a little bit about arrows because I think that you know that's something that that you're pretty passionate about, um, and that's a that's a debate that we've had amongst our Buck Fever crew um, 
about what what type of arrows and what's the best arrow setup with what broadhead and are you going for speed or weight or kinetic energy what are you what are you trying to get set up here with your arrows well so back um when i lived in wisconsin there was a there was a kid who was doing a senior project and he came to me he's like i want to do a senior project what should we do i was like what do you mean we already graduated bro like <laughs> he's like well i really want to do something with archery and I said, well, you know what would be fun? Um, I wanted to take a dozen different manufacturers of some of the top arrows in the industry. I wanted to take the arrows and I wanted to see. So a lot of people wonder what spine is on an arrow. Some people call it spline. It bothers me, but go ahead. I don't mind. Um, and basically the spine of an arrow when an arrow shot it's considered archer's paradox and what that means is the arrow bends it flexes it's an energy transfer so the the arrow is accepting only as much energy as it could possibly accept and then the bow is taking the rest and you're taking the other portion of that um, we've come a long way with our dampening systems and parallel limb design and things like that so it's amazing but so with that being said the thesis to this was, and I, and I, and I had been working uh, with the gentleman, Rick uh, McKinney, because we had talked about this many, many times. People couldn't understand why, you know, these Olympic archers, they got the best arrows and they, well, it's not necessarily they had the best arrows. They picked the best arrows because when you're, when the Olympic training center is sponsored by Easton, Easton will send you boxes upon boxes of ACEs. And they were the aluminum carbon arrows for recurves. So you could take 200 arrows if you really wanted to, and you could find the absolute most perfect matched arrows that there were. And by matched, I say, just because it says 300, and what the numbers mean on these arrows, it actually means the spine of the arrow. You've got 200, 250, 300, 350 spine. That's, that means when you hang this weight, I wish I could remember the weight of the, of the it might be a one pound weight, could be wrong. I cannot remember for the life of me. I just own it. I should probably weigh it one day. Um, but when you hang this weight in the middle of this arrow and put it on a spine tester, it will measure from zero. It'll flex to three thousands. That's 300 spine. Flex to four thousands, 400 spine. Two, you know, so on and so forth. It, it's just the way the arrow flexes. And I, I think I might have that backwards. But anyway, it's the way the arrow flexes. And the arrow will bend. Now, the beauty of this is Carbon arrows, you, you back in the day, aluminum arrows, they're still, to me, at 20 yards, you're not making a whole lot of difference with a field point, okay? People can be like, well, I shoot this, and at 20 yards, I'm really accurate with my field points, I'm great. Yeah, you will be. It's when you start putting the, the broadheads on there, which is going to extend the uh, front of center, it's going to extend the weight on the front, because there's a couple of ways to change the spine of an arrow. You can either add weight to the back, which will stiffen the spine, or you add weight to the front, and that is going to weaken the spine. So our, our guess was when these manufacturers sell you a dozen arrows, you get probably, we, we guessed, nine or ten that were really close in spine, being if it's labeled 300, it'd be anywhere from 280 to 300 and. 20 that was our guess we were completely shocked to see how much of a differential there was 
in this group of arrows. Some of them were, uh, they'd say 300, but they'd be 265. And the, and the stiffest arrow would be 325. That's a massive difference. That's almost a complete arrow size difference if you think about it, because they're going by the 100, 200s to 300, so on and so forth. So the, the hypothesis thesis was that if you have a group of arrows that deviate in spine so much, they will not group as well and they will not shoot broadheads as well within the group because one is flexing more than the other when you shoot them. It's not accepting the energy the same as the other one is. So there's our hypothesis, all right? Now, how are we gonna prove this is the question. So we spent several days calling manufacturers of arrows. Hey, this is such and such, we're doing a senior project and we'd like to have a dozen arrows to test and here's here's how we're going to test them. I don't even know if this place is still in existence in Wisconsin, but it was a one it was a 90 meter indoor range, 90 meters indoors. So you take out all the wind, and we were going to shoot them out of the Hooter shooter. Seems like a legit idea to me. And now you have to try and take out the variables, which is fletching, inserts, knocks, all that stuff. So what we ended up doing is when they would send us a dozen arrows, we took those dozen arrows that they sent us, put them on the shelf and took the arrows that me, you and everybody else buy. Because we also thought, wait a minute, if these, if these companies know we're trying to test for this, they're gonna give us the best possible. They're gonna hand select some and here you go, here's our standard arrows. So we would take what the, what the person could buy off the shelf. Seemed like a legitimate idea to me. The next process of this was to make sure we took the inserts, and this was this was one of the key factors that we could not believe. The components to build arrows have must have zero quality control sometimes. Inserts, um, knocks, everything. It was amazing, especially inserts, to see the difference in grains, to see the difference in actual size of the of the insert itself and how flush it was and any kind of quality control that that mattered and we went through some because because we had of course bulk amounts of these inserts because they're all standard size we spent a very long time trying to find inserts that were almost all identical for each dozen arrows we also used, uh, and, and you can use any fletching jig. This isn't a plug. I, I, I love the Bits and Burger jig. I always have. It's old school. I, it's just kind of what I've, I've always grown up doing. You fletch it with whatever you want. Don't care. Have a, have a blast as long as it's consistent. But we took one single jig and fletched all dozen arrows with one single jig. Of course, you're going to have deviations in glue. There's that's not up for debate or argument. Of course, you're going to have that. But it was the same jig for every single arrow. So you didn't have, you know, a, a set of six arrow jigs and one be slightly at a three degree, one's at a two and a half, one's at a three and a half. We use the same jig. So now we're taking that equation out of it. And we got all these pull, put out. And once we found the field points that were all pretty close to the, the same, you know, 100 grain, I think it was 100 grain. Um, we got them all as close as we could, 100 grain, 99 grain, we all. So we used the same set of, of uh, points 
in every single dozen arrows. So that never changed. So the idea was we would take these dozen arrows and we would shoot them all at 100 yards and see what kind of group we got with a field point. We all we know that any arrow manufacturer with a field point can generally shoot a 300 with 60 X's. That's, that's not really a, unless they just got something really bad going on. Um, but we wanted to shoot at 100 yards and see kind of where that went. You have to remember uh, a, a couple of key facts here. Um, back in the day when we shot fingers, okay, you're familiar, you guys are familiar with burger buttons? Yep. Okay, the little burger button had a spring in it, and you could adjust the spring to to start what they would call the paradox, the bending of the arrow sooner or later, because when you shoot with fingers, an arrow bends left and right. Okay, that's how that arrow comes flying out. Now we got this bright idea to put put string loops on there and the releases. So what minimal bend you do have in that arrow turns to vertical. It bends up and down. And that can be changed a little bit by, again, we get into tuning, but it can be changed by how the rest is set up. When that bends, you could have your string loop too tight, too loose, whatever. But it was the same bow. So we shot the first group of arrows, and and we saw the group. Uh, this this kid asked me, he's like, why is it like this? And the grouping was actually up and down. A lot of people would be like, oh, well, you know, you're, you're, you're dropping your bow, whatever. But it was actually because if you think about it at 100 yards, if an arrow bends more than another one or is more stiff than another one, you're not going to get that quite that energy transfer. So it is going to have an up and down group because that's the way the arrow is bending. So we could see oblong groups. Not some some of the arrows, uh, the best arrows stayed in the in the in the five and uh, the four on an NFAA target. Some of the most expensive arrows, we had completely missed the blue face of the target. It went the whole length of the target up and down. Now people are like oh, 100 yards. It's it's a simulation to to exacerbate any inconsistencies in the spine of the arrow. And we were able to. We didn't just shoot these arrows one single time. Each arrow had its own target, and we shot those arrows three times, and then we measured the group up and down. Anything, we, we threw out the, 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 the worst six shots. So anything that was way out, we took the, we took the six out of there so we could get a, a pretty, good, pretty good idea. And some very expensive arrows performed extremely poor. The beauty of this is before we did all of this, we took every single arrow and put it on a, a what is considered a spine tester to test the spine. And we would roll them and find out the stiff side of that spine and the weakest side of that spine. And we would document it and we would label the arrow. Those arrows were within inch or so, quarter of an inch, of its same hole for each test. Even if it was off, let's say it went in the one ring, it still went in the one ring the second and third time. So we were able to document each arrow that went there and they were the same arrows. So you're looking at a manufacturer, imagine owning a, a, an arrow manufacturing business where you build 100,000 arrows. Out of those 100,000, 20,000 of them, you know, they're, they're just not really fitting into a 300, 400, or 500 spine because arrows, just the way arrows are built, so on and so on, we can go into that whole discussion. But 
So what they they tend to do is, hey, this is this is our tolerance. We can accept this and this. So they throw them all in a bundle, and you get sometimes you got seven, sometimes you got nine. There was only one arrow manufacturer where all ten of them had such a tight tolerance. They all stayed in the four and five. Everything else had at least three flyers that would not be consistent. So we thought, okay, we've already proven this. This is this is pretty cool, pretty cool putting our the the the, the concept to work. And again, no win, no nothing, shooting machine. So now we're seeing that how absolutely important spine differential is uh, from high to low in a dozen arrows. If I could have a thousand arrows, I could find the dozen arrows that literally are exactly the same or close to exactly the same. People always say, you know, when you spin this, oh, you want to put your your, your cock feather at the, the stiff side of the spine. That's not necessarily true. If you can get all your arrows to, let's say they're all labeled 300, and each one of them can get to a 302, even your high and low, or maybe a 310, or even a 290, that's where you want them. You want them all close to the same exact spot so they accept the energy, so they bend the exact same as they fly out of that bow. It's not necessarily the stiff side. A lot of people think, oh, it's just it's the stiff side. No, because if you do the stiff side and it's this huge deviation, then you the stiff side of this arrow is 290, stiff side of this arrow is 360. So you just run into the same problem. So you take that 360 and the closest they can get to 290 is 300. Cool, put it there. And now you're going to yep. work with a little bit better, you know, we have that cock feather there. So it's putting the bow the exact same way to the paradox or bend the same way the others do. I compare that to, you know, let's say you're shooting a stick out of a bow as compared to a straw. Which one do you think is going to bend a lot more? And if you think they're going to hit the same place, you're sadly mistaken. Why do you think a 200 spine arrow doesn't hit where a 300 or a 300 doesn't hit where a 400 will? Because they are different in spine. So we were all geeked out about that, right? We were all like, all right, cool. We've we've proven this. And And the best part about it is I went to the ATA show that year and started asking these manufacturers and these reps, hey, what's your deviation in spine? What's your protocol? What's your what's your tolerance uh, uh, as far as spine goes within a dozen arrows? Guys, they they couldn't tell me. There was not one there was one single manufacturer that could tell me, but the rest they could not tell me. They had no and they were well, let me get back with you. They were making phone calls, man, but nobody could tell me. So I was like, interesting, you know, why how are we missing this? So then we decided to up the up the ante a little bit. If you have spine differential, what's going to happen when you throw a broadhead onto these things with, with field points? You know, field points are already forgiving as it gets. So then we decided to call broadhead manufacturers. Why not? We're already in this knee deep, you know. Yeah. So we called them broadhead manufacturers. We called I want to say it was a dozen. I don't quote me on that. It was it was several different ones, and we shot mechanicals, we shot fixed, we shot we shot everything you could imagine. And the first thing we did is again trade them out with something on the shelf because I don't want you sending me your hand selected stuff. Um, and then the machine that I have to test spine, it would you could actually put it on there, and 
number one, most air, most of your carbon arrows now are what are they? Zero, zero, one to zero, zero, five straightness. I mean, they're, they're extremely straight straightness versus spine. I'll take spine, consistent spine over a little bit of straightness any day of the week, but we made sure. So we, we put these broadheads on there and they had a wobble and you could put this, the tip of it in, and you could actually gauge how many thousands these broadheads were off. So in the manufacturing process, you know, it doesn't seem like much, but you take from the end of the arrow out to a long, like, let's say a mechanical where some of these things are long, it might be only three thousandths down here, but it's seven thousandths down there. Now you basically have something that's bent trying to guide the front of your arrow and decreasing the spine of an arrow that already has a bad spine to it anyway. So we learned something pretty cool with that. Okay. Now, this the, these broadheads are wobbling why well first of all i don't know any aerosol that cuts an absolute perfect 90 degree angle and i'm talking perfect so you put an insert in there where that insert is pushed in on one side it's sinking down two thousandths well you increase that when the tip of that broadhead is what uh, an inch two inches away now it's facing, you know, it's it's not facing where it should. So it's going to guide that arrow because that's what broadheads do. They tend to try and fight the fletchings. And one of the biggest, one of the greatest things to ever come into archery for accuracy has been the drop away. That's been a phenomenal thing for, <laughs> we had the old barge that was an inertia rest. That was one of the first ones ever made. It, it never would consistently work to actually use it like a hunt or even, even competition. It would generally break. Um, but then we got the bright idea to take the old TM Hunter and put a string on it. Lo and behold, we created the first dropaways. And the beauty of that was uh, it, it took out, you could use really, really stiff fletchings to take over the flight of that arrow, where it used to be had to have pretty weak fletchings because if it made contact with your rest, you don't want it bouncing across you. You guys would see, have you guys, you guys have felt older fletchings and really you know rubbery fletchings and now you got what you got blazers and you got all these cool things and man those things are bricks man they're like almost just pure plastic the beauty of it is they don't hit anything and they guide so much better because they don't bend they don't forget they don't bend and and, and try to to not guide that arrow so that that's a beautiful thing so once you have that we decided okay let's take the inserts out and they they had just come out with something called a, an, a, an AS, uh, ASD. It was an arrow squaring device. And all it was was a piece of sandpaper that was perfectly, you know, flat. And you took your arrow and you would spin it on there and true up the actual carbon itself. So we would take a silver marker. We would color the end of the arrow, spin it, look at it. And if there was any ink still left, we'd spin it again until all the ink was gone. And that told us, hey, you got rid of that slightly off cut. Then we put the, the insert back in and we did the same to the insert. And the inserts were terrible. Some of these inserts were horrible as far as being um, being squared. So we took the arrow squaring device, which had a little tool. We painted the end of the, the, the uh, insert black. And we would spin it until it would cut off enough material that it would be dead nuts flat. And then we put the broadheads on. A tremendous difference that made. But there were still some broadhead manufacturers. You'd have four broadheads, man, that were pretty decent. 
And then you have tears like, why is this thing wobbling so much? And the, the it just it was just really poor quality control. But when you run a small business like that and stuff, I guess you, you can't have that much waste. So and, and again, you look at a lot of your broadhead manufacturers where they made China, you know, places like that. So you get ten thousand broadheads in, you give somebody four or five that are good, and here, here we'll throw this one in here so we don't lose money. We don't we don't want to throw, you know a thousand of our broadheads away so they'll throw them in the package and we shot some of these broadheads and it was unbelievable at 100 yards how terrible these things were we're like okay wait a minute so maybe we should try something a little different so we got the bright idea you, you talk about a long a long two days we took one broadhead one arrow shot it Brought it back, took the broadhead off, put another broadhead on it, shot it. It was the same arrow. The only difference was the broadhead. The grouping was terrible on some of these broadheads. And the biggest culprits, you're going to laugh, the biggest culprits, expandables, mechanicals. Yep. And I first learned the the detriments about mechanicals. I've I've only shot one mechanical in my life. Uh, it, was, it, it worked. Um, I got it tuned. But it was a 100-yard cash shootout, and one of the most popular mechanicals that exist today, one of the blades flopped open, and oh boy, the, the arrow did such a dive out of the ATA show. It did such a dive, it hit the carpet, went underneath, cut through the carpet, and just went for however far it went underneath the carpet. It just took a nosedive. And the only thing I could think of when I saw that was, oh yeah, that's going to happen to me on the buck of a lifetime. You know, that's just exactly how that's going to work because that's my luck. I understand, dude, uh, I don't know if this is a rated PG, you know, podcast, but I, I keep telling you. We have the ability to censor, Rich. Go for okay. it. Okay, well, I always I always tell people my luck, it could be raining and I'm going to get hit with a That's how, that's my luck. So I realize this. So the best performing broadhead was actually a one-piece manufactured resharpenable broadhead. And those bad boys made a group that was about three and a half to four inches at 100 yards. I'm like, wow. So you're telling me I can resharpen this exact same broadhead and shoot every time and have the confidence. So it was, a, it, I did not expect the results we got with the broadheads. I was I was very disappointed to see the the quality control as far as that goes, and even the inserts and stuff. But we can go over. I mean, honestly, the proper the proper selection and spine of an arrow. Most people shoot too weak of a spine. Oh, I can shoot five grains per pound. Well, that's beautiful, but is that really what you want to do for hunting? Because you know, you, the 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 formula for kinetic energy. Yeah, speed does play a part in it. But when you're actually looking at kinetic energy, um, and doing all that cool stuff, it it does make a huge difference in in how that goes. And I, what is the oh, I'm trying to remember the kinetic energy formula? Something uh, kinetic. I think it's uh, is it mass or, or weight? Um, I think it's mass times volume squared divided by four hundred fifty thousand eight hundred. I think is what that is, and that gives you foot pounds and all that cool stuff. But People will find if you don't want to buy a different arrow, 
go ahead and lower your poundage because then you're not bending that arrow so much. And you'll find that actually stiffen, it doesn't actually stiffen the arrow up. That's a really, but that's uh, the only way I can explain it. You generally will get better groups because it's not a weak arrow anymore. And when you're shooting a, a broadhead, you definitely want to go. I mean, I've told guys, go a size up. It's fine. Even though it says this, go a little stiffer or go about five to eight pounds less and see what happens then. See how much better your arrows fly. And, and, and people, you know, people fight that one. They don't really want to lower their poundage, you know, because we, we got that ego thing going. Everybody does, you know. Uh, so it made a tremendous difference. So when you're building arrows, when I build my hunting arrows and get ready, the first thing, the very first thing I do, put them on the spine tester and I find the exact spot as close to exact numbers as I can. So if it's a 300 spine and I've got a deviation between 290 and 310, then we're going to put them all right here, you know, X, Y, or Z, where they all, I mark them. And this is as close as I can get. Never perfect science. It's not going to be perfect. But then I get one single jig out and I put the cock feather right where that mark is. And I continue to fletch from there. And I fletch all my dozen arrows with one fletching jig. I also make sure that when they're fletched, that fletching is not touching my face when I draw that back. Some guys actually have their fletching touch in their face, which can cause some issues in and of itself. It's a whole, whole nother thing. Um, but after I get that done, then I work on inserts and I work on making sure that those, that the, that the end of those arrows are squared away, perfectly square. The inserts are square as they can be. And each broadhead, when I screw it on there, I'm trying, and, and if I see, the broadhead is just a slight bit off. I can take the broadhead off. I'll mark the insert and I'll take a Dremel and just, just tap just a tiny bit. And then I'll reef that broadhead down and make sure. And sometimes I take too much off. Got to start again and take an insert out and start all over. But I try to make everything 100% straight as I can possibly make it. Because when you're dealing with kinetic energy, you have to remember the energy transfer and it blows people's mind that one of the best broadheads for cutting through, through, do you know the best, best broadhead for cutting through hide? Do you know what it actually is? What would it be? It's the old two blade bear broadheads. It's the old two blades, the wikis. Uh, I'm sorry, there's a three blade. Uh, it's the old, you know, those old two blade resharpenable broadheads. That's now that does mean you have always two, two blade single bevel. Beautiful, but it doesn't mean you have to shoot those. But the reason I say it cuts, it cuts immediately upon impact. It starts the cutting process. Now you have your cool trocard tip, which is the, 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 some of these people, they have the, you know, the trocard tip, the kind of the chisel tip and people are like, oh, bone crusher. Yeah, those are great because we all know that we're going to hit bone eventually because like I said, you know, that's my luck. That's how this works. Um, but when you can take a broadhead and get somewhat of a trocard tip that is actually sharpened all the way to the tip, that's pretty cool too. But even when you start shooting, when you shoot a fixed blade broadhead, every single bit of your kinetic energy with a straight flying arrow is transferred into that hide, transferred into that bone and through that animal, especially on quartering shots. 
when you shoot a quartering shot with a mechanical, one blade has to open first, causing a drag on that side of the arrow immediately, especially with bone. And you're getting some deflection. You're also getting loss of kinetic energy. It, it can't not happen. It's a it's a, literally a physics thing. That does not mean mechanicals don't kill deer. That's not even a thing. It just means when you have the kind of luck I do and you don't want anything messing this up and you don't want to leave anything to chance, I've blown through shoulder blades. You know me, Eli. I, because I'm colorblind, have a have a very difficult time tracking. How many animals did you see me shoot in the spine and just drop them? Yep. You know, there's a lot of that they just they, they won't get through it. I down here in, in South Florida, one of my first experiences with understanding kinetic energy and understanding how well these things penetrate, I had the the muzzy fish arrow on a an, on a solid fiberglass, you know, the fi- solid fiberglass, I don't know how many grains that thing is, probably 600, I wouldn't doubt, uh, with that trocar tip, 11-foot alligator. We went after him, and I had a 70-pound recurve. Got up on this alligator about nine yards away and shot him straight in the back. Arrow fell right out of him. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And they, they call them scoots, the little bumps on an alligator. The, mm-hmm. that, that bow did not, at about 10 yards, get through this alligator out of a 70-pound recurve with a 600-grain arrow. I was like, huh, well, there's something you don't see every day. Like, I was completely baffled. You would think that that's got – you could do the math on that and find out how many foot pounds. So realizing that, you know, you got to take an alligator, you know, into, into, into a lot softer skin. That was me being, you know, the first-time alligator hunter guy. Um, but even then, that, that says a lot when you're, when you're hitting bone, when you're hitting ribs – when you're shooting those extreme quartering shots that, you know, say, oh, you shouldn't do it. Hey, if you believe it's an ethical shot and only you know your true limits, by all means, there's nobody that can. I love the Internet. Everybody is a professional and everybody wants to tell somebody what they should and shouldn't do. But I don't know your limitations. I don't know your shooting skills. I don't know. I don't know what you do. Whatever you feel comfortable with, if you believe it's an ethical shot, by all means. But the last thing I want to do is have any loss of kinetic energy, worry about did that. Did that blade open up? Did it did it ricochet off the, the the ribs? Did it do this to do that? And yes, fixed blade broadheads can do that too, but they're not requiring any any energy to start the cutting process and the transfer of of energy because we all know an object in motion tends to stay in motion unless met by an equal or greater force. Well, that equal or greater force being that deer. So that's that's just how that works. I don't fault anybody that uses mechanicals to have at it. I don't, it does not bother me. I'm not going to get in a, in a waving contest about which one does this. I just know from testing and I don't want to plug arrow. I don't want to plug arrows. I don't want to plug broadheads. I don't want to say, Oh, this is what I use because this testing, if you believe your stuff works and you're shooting good with it, please, by all means, because an accurate field point will puncture a deer's heart and kill it. Okay, we all know a perfect shot with a field point on a deer would actually kill it. Illegal, but it would actually dispatch the animal. So the best broadhead and arrow combination, I've given you all the tools I've got to create the, the most accurate. But the best broadhead and arrow combination 
is the one that hits where you're aiming in a good quality shot. If you are nasty accurate with a mechanical and you can keep your composure and you can shoot those, wait for that broad broadside shot, by all means, let her rip. But I hunt hogs down here too. And let me tell you what, those, those are some really tough animals. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, I've seen bullets bounce off of them. Like, what is that all about? So again, it, it, it has to, I, I don't, I don't ever want to offend anybody or get anybody upset that, oh my, he said this and why is he, that's why I don't really mention a lot of names. I'm, I'm all for you. If you, 90% of your archery is your confidence in your equipment. Like I said, that's why I shoot something that preseason is the exact same thing that I took out in the woods with me. Not the new package that I opened and quickly screwed on there because I learned those bad boys may not have the same tolerances. Those may not even fly. They, they may miss. So I'm using well, the set of broadheads that I literally practiced with for the last month and a half. Yeah. So if you're going in to buy arrows, um, your recommendation would be make sure that they're, they have a, a consistent spine. Is there a way in most archery shops where they, where they could test that for you? Probably not. You're going to find that most archery shops sell what they have or sell what they shoot and promote what they shoot. It works for them what they believe is the best. So I've, I've spent, and Pat, too, he's not on here tonight, but we spent a lot of time looking into this because I had a bad streak a couple of years ago with, with some animals that um, you know, I, I didn't make the greatest shot on because it's a living animal and you know they they have crazy superhuman reaction time and can move and all kinds of stuff um so we just kind of decided we're gonna we're gonna start to prepare for when things go wrong and we spent a lot of time doing research and um we're we're both shooting heavier arrows we're both shooting fixed blade um we're both shooting arrows that have um, the higher FOC, um, just strictly for kinetic energy purposes. And we, like we completely have thrown out the speed because you can you can practice and you can get your bow sighted in at different ranges with that arrow, and it, the speed of it doesn't really matter. If it drops six inches or a foot, it doesn't really matter as long as the kinetic energy is up. Would you say that that's Oh, absolutely. You, it, it, I like to say, oh, my gosh, you, you can snatch the pebble from my hand now. It's so so nice to hear you growing up, you know, that kind of that, that analogy, funny thing. But you're 100% correct. A lot of people drop FOC, forget even that exists. And front of center is huge with broadheads. The other portion of it is, of course, having a stiff enough spine to accept that heavy front of center without just, you know, that arrow just kind of almost bending and, and not really accepting the kinetic energy coming out of these, these bows. And last but not least, it's there's something to be said about um, today's technology that we have that we didn't back in the day. Bro, I've got a laser rangefinder for God's sakes. I know how far that deer is. Yeah. I have a buddy of mine. His name's JJ. He 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 hunts. He shot a great Justin. He's a great kid. I have watched him, and people will lose their mind if I when I tell this story. I watched him shoot a doe at 98 yards. Oh my God. (laughs) 
98 yards and dumped her. This kid practices and shoots phenomenal and practices at 100 yards. No wind, no nothing. Let her rip and smoked her. I'm like, I told him, I was like, I wouldn't believe it. I didn't see it. Yeah. So me telling that story, oh, that's unethical. Is it? Because that doe's dead. I've, I've, I've hit deer bad at 10 yards. Okay. So know your limitations, but people have to realize a doe can drop or a, a deer, not a doe, a deer can drop its entire body. No matter how fast your bow can be 380 feet per second. If that doe is alert or that buck is alert, it can still drop. There's a look at the slow motion video of some of these things on YouTube. Their bellies touch the ground and they go over top of them. So a silent, a very quiet, sufficiently fast with a lot of kinetic energy, and you stand much better chance instead of relying on speed to do everything for you. And speed speed is hard sometimes, a lot of times, to, to get those broadheads to fly. Because let's face it, you're rocketing these things out there at 320, 350 feet per second. But why? I mean, I kill deer with a longbow that's 60 pounds with a big cedar arrow. How fast do you think that boy is rocking out there? It's not even mm -hmm. 200 feet per second. So yeah. same thing. We were killing deer with with bows that were barely barely breaking that 220 mark. So I will again. I will take a slow hit over a fast miss any day. Well, you know, one of the things that I find so interesting about these discussions too is that you could talk about any one of these topics. I mean, let's just say broadheads, for example, and you could do all the research in the world and determine, you know, like physically speaking, based on the laws of physics, what the best type of broadhead would be to kill a deer the most reliably. And yet you bring that up to certain people and they still, for the life of them, cannot make a change because what they've done for forever works. You know, they, they've been shooting uh, an expandable and it's never failed on them and they have awesome blood trails. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's just one of the most interesting parts about all this is how, you know, different people can react to these things differently. And sometimes people just have these things that work for them and they just, they're not going to switch it up no matter how wrong physically something could be because it just works for them. Yeah, and and again, you if you really want to see something cool, take a take an expandable, shoot it dead straight through a middle of of you know quarter inch plywood. Take that same expandable and shoot a quartering away shot, or quartering to whatever quarter quarter the wood. No, that doesn't simulate bone or anything. It's just it's all about energy transfer and whatnot. Take a fixed blade, shoot straight on and shoot quartering and see which one penetrates more. And, and it's okay. You, you can still shoot your mechanicals. I'm not saying a mechanical won't work, but I'm saying as far as efficiency and stuff like that, there's nothing ever going to beat a fixed blade, 100% fixed blade broadhead. It just physics can't. However, some people drive a Ford, some people drive a Chevy. You ain't getting them to switch, and that's okay. That's the beauty of archery. 
we've got that's why there's not just one bow manufacturer that's why there's not just one arrow manufacturer one site manufacturer that's why all this exists right so that people can just buy what they want and have a, have a good time enjoy if it works for you by all means have at it and man i did a lot of product testing it's one of my favorite things to do um one of the one of the strongest arrows in existence today that still can't be perfected for accuracy is a pultruded carbon arrow back in the day they started making it so so carbon arrows are wraps i don't know if you guys know this but they're actually yeah. a wrap and they get wrapped up so a pultruded carbon is actually more like your uh, some of your fishing poles and whatnot you know how they can bend you know like an ugly stick will bend like oh, forever but a pultruded carbon is basically carbon um, rods, basically like little fibers that are completely long. And they're all pulled through a system of glue and whatnot and put together. And they're nasty strong. Oh my goodness. We could shoot them through steel drums and they would not break. They wouldn't falter at all. And the penetration was nasty. Problem is you couldn't get them to fly because they couldn't get the spine consistent in a dozen of them yeah crazy so i um, think a lot of a lot of what you're saying here too um I, at least my interpretation of it is that when it comes to things that work for people or, or whatever one of the most important things is the consistency of it all the repeatability of it all whether it's your form whether it's the things you put on your bow or the arrows or broadheads you pick out that you know, there's, there are certain things physically that, that could be better or worse, but ultimately the most important thing is just the consistency of all of these components. I would agree with that. As long as whatever you're shooting, as long as they're, they're consistent, as long as the spine is close to, to everything. And again, you got, you heard me say it before and I guarantee you laugh and I guarantee people that listen to this will laugh and go, yep, you've got squirrel arrows. I'll just shoot that as squirrel. I've got that for the rabbit. They go, oh, that's a coon arrow. And we know why. I can physically, I can, I can prove to you why. You'll get six arrows with six broadheads that fly and you'll be good. But will you get a dozen? I, I don't know about you, but when I pay for a dozen arrows, I kind of want all dozen to hit where I want them to hit. Yeah, that's for sure. That's what I paid for. Um, but people are content with buying a dozen arrows and, and shooting. All right, these are my three, these are my five hunting arrows, and I'll just use these to practice with. You know, we we've all done it. Um, and that's okay. I, I don't mind that. I'm just giving you some food for thought. I'm just some people may be able to, you know, look into look into just arrow differences. And if if you if your local archery shop has I used to tell guys that I guarantee you I can take your arrows and I can tell you which ones are going to fly off when you put broadheads on them. And I would hand them back. Yep, I got them marked. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. And I would write the numbers down. They'd come back and tell me, yep, I would 100% accuracy. So it, again, it, there's something to be said about, I don't, guys, have, the biggest thing to me, have fun, man. If you're out there and enjoying outside, out just, just enjoy yourself get you just shoot your bow practice get some good repeatable form i hope hope what i've given you will give you some food for thought maybe re, you know building your arrow some guys don't know how to build arrows, so they got to rely on the shop shops are into mass producing man they don't have time to again they're not going to build your arrows the way you would but they've got 
you know, I remember the shop that I worked in, but we had, I, I want to say three dozen bits and burger jigs on a wheel and we just put them all in there and we had clamps and we'd rotate it and we'd switch. And I mean, you're literally getting a dozen arrows that are fletched by a dozen different jigs. So that's something now, that anybody can do if, if they go to their archery shop is, is to request that all of their arrows get fletched, fletched with the same jig. I would, I would almost, I would almost say that you could request it and they'll pretend they did it. Nobody wants to do that. You know how time consuming that is. And again, yeah. every, everybody knows October 1st is opening day. That's why they stop by on September 25th, requesting a new tune, new strings, new bow, new arrows, everything. It's like, what are you doing? Like, you know, opening day has been this for how many years? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, as a as a shop, you can buy arrows that are pre-fletched, or you can start like our shop. We made arrows up. We were always fletching arrows for those guys that came in. I don't care what color. Let's just I need arrows. All right, well, right there, there, they're fletched. Have at it. But we didn't use the same jig. We don't have time. You know, you I don't I don't know if you ever worked in an archery shop, but I worked. I can remember sixteen hour days. For three weeks prior to opening day just trying my hardest to get these guys i would build strings build strings and cables right on the spot because you can't order them fast enough they can't get there and these guys show up five days before season hey how old is this oh so i got two busted strands do you know the problem with one busted strand you guys are very silent on that one yeah i don't yeah. Do you know a string is an endless loop of one single string? It's one string that is wrapped around posts, and then it's sealed off with your serving. You break one single strand, you've broken the whole string. It's now completely broken. I watch guys shoot with three broken strands. It's like I've seen guys shooting with like two broken strands. I'm like, what are you doing? I see guys still old, older, older guys grab a piece of leather and put the wax on the string and burnish it in there and get it nice and hot. Well, that used to be great with Dacron, but now you're working with 452 X and 8125 and all these new cool and their Dyneema inspector. These things turn to a liquid polymer at like 120 degrees. You're literally melting your own string and stretching it out in places and making it weaker in places than others when you do that. So <laughs> it is, it, there's so, there's so much that goes along with this and people don't, I, and I'm not the end all be all archery guy. I just know that I, you know, I've trained guys that have made the world team. I've trained national champions. One of my kids won the world, uh, the IBO world championship, state record holder, state championships. I mean, I shot pro division. I, 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 hell, I went a second place in the Badger state pro division. I, I had a lot of fun doing it and it doesn't mean I'm the end all be all. And there's tons of guys out there that can give you advice and, and it's going to work. But when it, I'm giving you the most basic physics, this is how things work. And no, it doesn't mean I'm, I got it all figured out. And, and you can always go, well, this pro said, well, that, that pro has paid a lot of money to make sure that you use X, Y, or Z, this equipment. And a lot of them have super good advice. I've watched a lot of videos lately 
there's a lot of good stuff out there, but how do you sort through it? Stick to the basics. Physics will never change. I hated physics, but when I started shooting archer, I suddenly loved it. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Um, to to close things out here, we gotta we gotta bring things back to a, a very very special book that you're that you're in the process of writing called Conversations in a Duck Blind. Oh yes. Um, you know it's been a while, so what? What's a what's a recent chapter out of there that that I might not know about yet? Um, well, let me think here. Well, so down here, I'm I'm in Florida now. Just in case anybody was wondering where the heck I wound up, um, I work for uh, Cleveland Clinic South Florida, and um, I also I'm, I'm a cyber cybersecurity analyst. So I went back to school, got my bachelor's degree for all that cool stuff because apparently I like computers or something. Um, I actually hate computers. I'm just good at it. Um. So we'll go to uh, we'll go to the, the gator hunting. And when I first started gator, very very green at gator hunting. I I didn't down here in South Florida. It's not like it's not like the swamp people. You don't get to you know shoot them a little bit, shoot them. You know you can't <laughs> you, you 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 can't use a, a firearm to dispatch a, a gator. So the way there it's generally done. Let's take all archery out of it. Just the way we generally hunt alligators is we have fishing poles with abnormally sized weighted treble hooks you go out at night you find their eyes you you, you have a you know the the little snap sticks that are on bobbers right that, that glow yeah. Yeah. you take a zip tie and attach that to the weight of the, the the hook so you can see where you cast the idea is to cast it across the gator and you bring it in and once you get it close you set the hook and you hook them and of course he gets very upset and that lets you know where he is so you get him reeled up pretty much close and you, you kind of get the boat over top of him or fairly close. Then you take the second treble hook, which is about the size. Uh, let me think of how big this treble hook would be, something that everybody would understand how big this is. Um, the, the, the diameter is a little bit bigger than a two liter bottle. So it's almost like a grappling hook and it's got yeah. large weight right down the center. And it's on a thousand pound piece of rope, thousand pounds of pressure. So with your hand, you throw this hook across and you start dragging it to try and find the gator. Once you feel it stop and you're pretty sure it's that gator, you pull with everything you got to set that, that large hook into this gator on this line. The first time I did this, I was almost yanked out of the boat. If you think you're strong, if you, if you think you're strong, get an 11-foot gator that wants to live. You're not strong. About yank me head over heels out of that boat. So I literally, my only reaction was to sit down on the bottom of the boat and hang on. You don't wrap the line around your hand because you will lose your hand. So this bad boy, he was about 11 foot. He was walking on the bottom, and he would uh, he was just dragging the boat around with him. Just what he does, you know, because he doesn't want to come up. But once you get him kind of a little bit tired out, you can start easing him up to the surface. Now, at that point, you have a harpoon with an equally strong rope. You try and get him in the soft skin around the neck or whatever and get him harpooned. Now you've got a hook in him and you've got a harpoon in him. In the state of Florida, you can only use what's, what is called a bang stick. 
So you, you drag them up beside the boat, kicking and screaming. I've, my buddy has literally a bite hole in his boat where this gator came up and bit the side of the boat and put two perfectly round holes in it. That was an 11 and a half foot gator. You bring him up and you hit him in the head with a with a bang stick. You know, we've got a 44 bang stick. I've got a 556 five, bang stick. It's basically a, you know, it's basically a little. You put a, a cartridge, uh, a rifle cartridge or a pistol cartridge in the end, and when you hit it on their head, it goes off. Mostly the concussion, you know, hits them in the head and it, it blows out the the brain and whatnot and kills them very humanely, very quick. Um, we always, you know, we always put two in them because that's just the way we do it. We also learned that, now mind you, we were pretty new at this. We also learned that gators have a really nasty habit of pretending they're dead. And when you're when you're going back to the dock, they pick their head up and they start moving their tail and thrashing everything in the boat. Not cool. So now we'll take a K-bar and we'll actually separate the spine. After you've bang-sticked them, bring them up, roll them in the boat, and you'll separate their spine. And that keeps them, you know, obviously from... You know, uh, being able to, once you separate the spine of any animal, clearly the back end isn't going to work. There's muscles and stuff that still twitch and whatnot, but that's, you know, that's standard. The reason I'm telling you all this process is because it never goes like that. Everything looks great on paper, but when you're actually alligator hunting, nothing ever goes to plan. And I'm talking nothing goes to plan. It used to be if you hooked an alligator, you had to keep that alligator that you, that you caught. It, once you hooked it, it's yours, and it has to be over three feet. Well, they changed the law. If you hooked it, got it to the side of the boat, realized it was one that was too small and you didn't want it, you could unhook it. Now, how you unhook it, I had no idea, but we came up with a couple solutions that worked. We hooked one, thought it was decent. Turns out he was only like six, six and a half, seven foot. He, he wasn't very big. He was very agile, though. Got him to the side of the boat, and we had a big wooden dowel rod that we were going to just you, – you're going to stick it on the on the on one of the treble hooks and push it really hard. You don't have the big hook in them. you just got the little one. So you push it really hard and pop the hook out. That was the plan. Well, apparently this gator didn't read the plan. He didn't know anything about our plan and was definitely not going to follow our plan. I got the wooden dowel there. He got one leg, his front leg up on the boat. And he did what's considered a death roll. Problem was, he's not death rolling outside the boat. He rolled inside the boat. Oh, my. <laughs> so now we have treble hooks, wooden dowels, bang sticks, and a pissed off gator in a 16-foot boat. Don't know exactly what I was thinking. I wasn't. It just, you know, adrenaline and stupidity, stupidity takes over. I reached down. I grab this gator and throw it out of the boat. And I gave it the old heave ho. It did about a 360 and hit the hit the water. And I've got this look. I, I if I could have had it on video, I don't know what the look on my face was, but I promise you it was not a good one. And my buddy Adam looks at me. My buddy Adam looked at me and goes, It's like, bro, I I I can't believe you just threw a seven foot gator. I was like, well, what else are we supposed to do? He's like, You picked up a seven foot gator. And you threw it out of the boat. And I looked at him, I was like, yeah. He goes, well, that's not bad enough. He goes, can you imagine the story this gator's going to have when he gets down there to the other gator? You don't have to believe this, bro. <laughs> I'm rolling a boat, man. 
guy picked me up and threw me completely. I did a three sixty. This gator is labeled the crazy gator for the rest of his life, trying to tell this story to all his <laughs> other other gator buddies. So you know that that's that's where the the lab. But we we have this. It must be just kind of a Florida redneck thing because if I if the if the mood can hit me just right and I can find one. It's always fun to grab about a two footer and chuck it at the guy that's in the boat with you. <laughs> <Just kinda. laughs> and that's always a hoot, but no, it's, and it's crazy what adrenaline fear and a change of your jockey shorts can make you do um, in that situation. And you just, you, the small, we found out that the actual overdoing this over the time of years, we found out real quick, the smaller gators are the worst ones to mess with. Like those six, seven footers, nasty yeah. agile and they'll get in the boat with you yeah yeah oh man that just reminds me of a conversation about why set lock was called set lock at the end of the day <laughs> <laughs> well see that's always the problem you know with waiters that that yeah. smell has one direction to go yeah. and it's it's not a place you want it to go that's terrible and when we duck hunt down here you know it's like you always eat the funkiest stuff before you go duck hunting and man, you pay for it. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then you, you, for some reason they had blats on sale or something and you decided to go with a natty daddy and and some boiled eggs. Why, why you would do that? I don't know, but you know, this, this is why they make dude wipes. I I, I promise you like this is, if you don't know what dude wipes are, I I highly recommend that you figure it out. They are the redneck bidet. It's it's a wonderful thing. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on, Rich. It's been it's been awesome. I hope everybody gets a lot from listening to this episode and really, really appreciate it. I greatly appreciate you guys having me on, man. I could you know me, I could talk about archery and hunting and gigging frogs and diving for lobsters and so there's a lot of stuff to do down here, but I will tell you one hundred percent, Eli, I, I miss I miss those big bucks, man. I miss down here in the in Florida. Um, my great Dane is bigger than these deer and <laughs> yeah. it's, I'm, it's not even, it's not even a joke. I'm not even, it's not even an exaggeration. Um, so I'm, I'm planning on, I would love this year to try and get back up. I, I don't have time with archery season probably maybe a gun season or something, but I would love to get back up and, and do that. I mean, cause down here, the beauty of it is I get to hunt Osceola's and I've, I finished my Turkey slam with a, with a shotgun. Um, last year I finally got my Osceola. So the goal is now before I die, I want to, I want to shoot every species of Turkey with a bow. I've already got the Eastern, I've got the Merriam, um, but I want to do them all again. Uh, those are the only two I shot with a bow, but I want to start fresh and get, get all species of uh, Turkey with a bow. So we're going to see how that works. We're going to start with the Osceola. Well, let's, let's make a, a deer, a deer tour happen. <laughs> That would be fun, and I, obviously, if you guys ever get a chance, I, we got more hogs than you can ever imagine. There's you don't want to come here to hunt deer because that's just I, I got nothing for you. Like you would, you would literally pass every deer. It's like it was only a six point. Yeah, dude, that's as big as they get. Sorry. Um, no, seriously, like you get a good eight point down here where I'm at, and that's that's a, an accomplishment. You know, a, a yeah. basket racks people would shoot up there would be a trophy down here. Um, but if you ever want to, you know, take some, an Osceola, I mean, those, to, to pay for an Osceola hunt down here is like $3,500. They, they get good money for those things. And I just go shoot their face off, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, but I think I sent you some of the videos from last year's hunt. You guys had some amazing yeah, cool. turkey video, bro. That was, I watched that yeah. time and time again. Yeah. There was, there was some crazy ones. 
um this past this past year for sure but no i i'm super thankful for your time tonight rich uh this this has been a really awesome conversation um whenever that book is going to be coming out i'm going to have to get myself a copy cuz it sounds like that's going to be a really good read um and um, it, it is um but i will warn you i mean even in the front the the front cover um the first the, the exercise i wish i had it with me um but it basically says, look, man, there's a lot of offensive stuff because I've I've hunted with uh, all races, all walks of life from the poorest person to uh, to lawyers and people that had a lot of. And I'm telling you, man, some of the conversations, they're flat out just rude. They're hilarious. I mean, it, 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 I can't mention some of the stuff on here, but it it basically says, look, man, if you're easily offended, don't don't read this. And if you do, you get what you get. Don't complain. Don't try and ban my book because you decided that you wanted to read it to see if I was serious about you. You will probably be offended. Okay, so it's pretty much what it says in the beginning. Because there's been some conversations. Uh, I think it's about as a matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs> we won't even get into that. Do you know oh, when it's when it was yeah. the other day? Is that is that I think is the proper. I don't know something. I could. I don't know what the proper terminology is, but it says book. So I, I'm sorry if it offends anybody. I really don't. It's not my intention in the least. But you know, it, it's it's all meant in good humor because you and I both know some of our conversations just it's just dudes talking, and it and it gets so funny sometimes and so out there and outlandish that. I guarantee you, I, I would almost see more women buying this to find out what the hell we talk about when we're out in the boat. Because they probably think it's like, you know, they're thinking about other girls and say, no, no, we have some of the dumbest conversations that probably should never even be repeated. But I'll put them in a book. Do you have any idea when it's coming out? I really don't. I've got several chapters, and, and my son even asked, like, when are you going to finish this? It's like, but I keep hunting. It's like, I, I, I every year I continuing to do this you know i my trip to alaska there was some phenomenal duck hunting there and some hilarious conversations um i've got doctors that i hunt with here and let me tell you what it, it, it's i mean we're, we're we're coming up with a really cool game called guess what's in my ass and <laughs> you you laugh but it's hilarious because i work around an er and believe it or not these people come in with things you didn't fall in the shower bro Okay. And we have the x-rays and we all try and guess what these items are without anybody telling us. <laughs> and this game came about because I saw this guy came in and then we're looking at it like, what is that? I'm like, dude, that's a band roll on. You remember band roll on like the, how they had a little curve. It has a little <laughs> roller ball on top of it. The x-ray, it was perfect. I was like, dude, that's like a band roll. They took him to the OR and Ruby at thing with, I got the brand and everything. Correct. 100%. <laughs> I was like, Only you and, and, and the doctor was like, <laughs> I have a lot of these. He goes, you know, I have files of these. And as long as, of course, you don't have the patient's name, obviously, it's not a HIPAA violation or anything. And we got to laugh. And I think people would buy this. I think people would just like, right, cool, let's do this. <laughs> it's a party it's, game. Well, it is. That's the, Well, yeah, it's like, me, you know, coming up with a, a candle set called Smells of the ER. It's a gag, you know, yeah. literally, but gag you. Like, you got homeless, you've got GI bleed, you've got dysentery. I mean, you got kinds of cool stuff that smell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this went way off track. My bad. No, it's all good. Yeah. 
whenever whenever the book does come out, we're gonna have our eyes peeled for it. It should be should be a good read. I know some of our audience will definitely want to check that out. Um, and to all of them, I want to thank them for tuning in here. Um, it's it's really been a great episode and a lot a lot to learn, a lot of information to take away from it. And I hope that they do. Um, and once again, Rich, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. No problem. I say I really appreciate you having me on and I uh, hope to hope to talk again. Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime for sure. So yeah, once again, um, thank you guys for watching. Thank you for listening and we will see you guys next time.